Sam, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say Farmers League? Oh, Liga, PSG. Oh, I'm so sorry, guys. It's the rampant return of the ranking roller coaster. Rank squad, are you ready to ride? Oh, yes, it's BR Football Ranks, the only show taking this football universe and sorting it into the correct order. My name is Jack Collins, and I'll be your host today. And I'm joined, as always, by the two BR Football behemoths. Firstly, some say that he honed his craft in an ice cream parlour, perfecting the art of the scoop. But now he's here with us, the Emir of the exclusive, Dean Jones. Bonjour. And the most divisive man this side of the Atlantic. It's the man who is rumoured has ranked his own family members in order of importance. The rank god, Sam Ties in the building. The rumours are true. Well done, Mum. <laughs> well done, Mum. Today we're delighted that we're going to be joined by a veritable football man, published author, independent journalist and prolific Twitter scrapper, Miguel Delaney, who's going to be talking us through his top five games that he's ever covered as a journalist before we get there though and before we invite him in let's look at what's been going on in the world of football in hot takes dj let's get it started listen ole Gunnar Solskjaer is going to get the man united manager's job full-time if they beat psg in the champions league now this is just my view at the moment but i think it's going to be a view that man united are going to hold after that tie they are looking towards those big ties now the big fixtures, I should say, left in the season to decide whether Solskjaer is deserving of this job. This is no longer just a bounce effect. He gets the fans. The fans love him. Listen, eight wins out of eight is good, even in amateur football. To do it in the Premier League at Man United after, with the kind of state that club was in when he took over, Mourinho is now a distant memory. And to be honest, Pochettino is kind of talking himself out of the job by saying things like, all trophies do is breed ego. Well, they don't, actually. They breed winners, and that's what Man United's all about, and that's what Solskjaer gets. He's being clever. He leans on Sir Alex Ferguson for advice, and he focuses just on the, the things that really matter and the things that he understands, not like people like David Moyes, who felt they had to do everything around the club and just took on too much, and it cost them their job. Mourinho argued with everyone. It was no good. Solskjaer gets it, um, and I think that that PSG tie is going to dictate whether he has the mentality for those big nights. And if he proves that he does, then he's the man for the job. Dean, I get what you're saying. Eight wins out of eight, or eight wins in a row is an achievement, no matter who you are, whichever club you are, whichever manager you are. Like, don't, don't, I'm not dressed that up the wrong way, but surely we're still in a slight honeymoon period. No, we're not. How, can, like, how can you have an eight-game honeymoon period? Well, they've played them all in the space of about a month. Doesn't first matter. Month, first how month t- on the job. How many other teams in the world right now have won eight games in a row? Probably someone in Ukraine, and that's about it. Yeah, but well, hey, let's just caveat this quickly with... They have to beat PSG first. This is no mean feat. And although PSG are playing in a league which is potentially underpowered in regards to the rest of the league, they are still unbeaten. They are, you know... Sam just said it's a farmer's league. Yeah, I know that Sam said it's a farmer's <laughs> league. But apart from that, you know, you have to look at... You know, they're still unbeaten. They still have world-class players in that squad. Even with Neymar and Verratti looking like they're going to be out, that's a hell of a job for Solskjaer. No, that's half my point. That is why he's got to prove it on, on nights like that. I mean, when this tie was set up I didn't give United a hope in hell of beating PSG and the the club was in a complete state of disarray now it's a completely different place a completely different feel and to be honest it's all because of Solskjaer and the attitude he's had towards this job 
Man United always had good players within that squad. Mourinho um, just didn't know what to do with them. Solskjaer has gone back to basics and he'll know what it takes to get those players performing on those big nights because he's been part of teams that have done exactly that. And honestly, I think if they get past PSG, then their job's his. Are you backing them to do it? I am backing them to do it, yeah. I am backing them because not only are they in a really good place, right? I know, look, we're a, f- we're a few little while away from this game at the moment and could be that they, you know, when we're recording this podcast, they might lose to Burnley tonight and this is going to sound very silly. But <laughs> ultimately, even if they did lose to Burnley, that's not what's going to decide whether Solskjaer stays in this job. It's those big games, the games against Man City, the games against Chelsea and big nights like PSG, and I believe they all beat them. Right, Sam, what's your hot take for the week? My hot take is uh, it's actually not necessarily competitive football related. It's it's FIFA related as in FIFA the game. Mm. I've completely fallen out of love with FIFA made by EA Sports. FIFA 19 sucks. It <laughs> sucks. It's broken. And I haven't played for about six weeks. Um, this coming from a man who's been loyal to this franchise since Road to the World Cup 98. Yeah, it was on, a great, that was a great game. On the Nintendo 64. So I've got my history with this franchise. Ooh. And look, I put my own money into the game every single year. I play Ultimate Team. I play with friends. I play with colleagues. I just hate this one. I don't want to pick it up. The gameplay has been awful. The glitches we see have been awful. The timed finesse stuff and the goalkeeper movements, the new elements they've brought into the game this year have completely ruined it. All of the glitches where players are gliding off the screen, we've seen goalkeepers standing still in penalty shootouts and letting balls go through their legs. It's tainted the entire thing for me. And I reckon I will not play another game of FIFA until FIFA 20 is released. Oh, That's good. how much I hate it. That's a big claim. I never thought I would be in this position as, uh, someone, as, someone, as someone who just has played FIFA all his life. Are you going to start playing Pro Evo? No. No. Don't so be silly. That's, that's, that is a bridge way too far. What I've done instead is booted back my N- Nintendo 64 and I've been playing Legend of Zelda Ocarina <laughs> of Time. Partially influenced by the podcast number one in which we ranked consoles and I talked about it. It gave, me, it gave me an idea. But like, I'm playing a console that was released in like 1996 ahead of playing FIFA 19. It's that bad. You can do other things apart from play on computers. No. There are also other games on the PlayStation that aren't FIFA. So that's true. And I've been playing Red Dead. But once I, once I finish that, like... Just play Zelda now. Right, I okay. find it quite funny actually because I think this is the best FIFA in a long time. Yeah, I like it purely, too. but my reason will be different to yours because I don't really play it, and I love the fact that everyone's getting so wound up about the fact it's got all these glitches. And I prefer just watching all the takes of people's mistakes where the goalkeepers yeah. just like disappear or just throw, <laughs> head one into their own net. Um, so I think it's the best FIFA in a long time, and I also like the fact that Sam's so wound up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm enjoying that more than pretty much most other things right now. Why do you like it? I just think because I don't play online, I just play with my brother. Is Exactly. Yeah. And I think that the gameplay when you play just online, or, well, offline, sorry, at home, against your mate, at home, against your mate is absolutely fine, and I've never had any problem with it. And, and also, it's the first FIFA in ages that I'm better than my brother at. So yeah. it's that's a so big, that, big yeah. statement. Yeah, that's a... You know, I'm 10 games ahead in the head-to-head. I like the fact you can track it. And, you know, all of these all these years where he's been better than me, you've not been able to track it at all. I'm like, nah, it's about level. <laughs> but this year, I'm look, look, I'm 10 games ahead. Well, Sam does look genuinely upset, so I do feel for you a little bit, Mike. I always look genuinely upset about you something. Actually, You're yeah. always grumpy about something. Yeah. Right, I want to move things back to football. Okay. Uh, and my hot take of the week is that Chelsea fans need to get over themselves because <laughs> there is... There is this weird culture at the moment in Chelsea, and I understand it, that you know Hudson-Odoi wants to leave and everyone's a bit upset because they haven't been playing their youth players and they've let a lot of good talent come in through the door and then leave. 
But in the last 10 years, Chelsea have been the most successful British club in domestic and European competitions. They've won the Champions League. They've won the Europa League. They've won three Premier League crowns, four FA Cups and a League Cup. That is more trophies than any other British team in terms of those competitions. They're, you know, Spurs have nothing. Liverpool have a League Cup. Arsenal, three FA Cups. City have three Premier League titles, an FA Cup and three League Cups. And United have Europa League three titles, an FA Cup and three League Cups. So Chelsea are a good two trophies ahead of anyone else. So I would ask these Chelsea fans, do you want to look at these, bring these youth players to, through and not worry about winning trophies? Because if you do, that's fine. But at the same time, that hounded out Antonio Conte for not winning anything last season, hounded out Jose Mourinho when they weren't doing well in the league because they weren't succeeding, winning trophies. And you can't have it both ways. You can't have, oh, we want to spend a lot of time bringing through youth players and, and succeeding because you've seen no team do that in the last 10 years. And I think that it's just really, really bizarre that they've decided that this is the time that they're going to start having a go at the management when, I, you know, arguably they're the most successful British club in the last 10 years. Well, they've been, they've been yeah, upset for several years and they do have this weird thing where they go up and down pretty violently don't they they yeah. win the league then they finish ninth then they win the league then they finish fifth I would get frustrated with that if I was a fan of the club as well or a fan of any club that did that it would be kind of annoying would you? Um, like you win yeah, a trophy be, every two would, years I think I'd live with have, that yeah you add that layer of perspective in because you do actually get that trophy so I support a team that never wins anything yes. so I'd actually kill for that but when you get used to a level of success and when you get used to winning trophies and silverware, I think those down years become pretty unbearable. So I can kind of see where they're coming from to a degree, but it comes from it comes from a position of being used to a certain thing. And as a full of hand, Jack, you're just not you're just not in that position. No, of course, and I understand yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and you. <laughs> uh, it was I understand that, but at the same time, like, do they want success and trophies, or do they want to bring youth players through because they're not like a feeder club in the way that you know. Teams have successfully brought youth products through. Teams like Southampton in the last 10 years who have then sold all their youth products to bigger clubs because they've been successful. You can't spend, you can't justify that with a team like Chelsea who get really upset if they're not finishing in the top four and then be like, oh, we don't blood enough youth players. That's not how it works. But, yeah, but do, you not see, do you not see that there is probably a bit more scope for someone like Callum Hudson-Odoi to play a bit more football this season and they still be in a position they are, which is fifth, three points but, off, off the top four? Yeah, on the flip side of that, Callum Hudson-Odoi has played more minutes than pretty much any other 18-year-old at a top club. Only because of the whole Ferrari over this. No, but I think he, he wouldn't have played been, it otherwise. I think he would. He I think he would have been part of that squad either way. Because Sarri's was... been under such big pressure from the Chelsea board. The Chelsea board aren't happy that he hasn't been given him more minutes, particularly in the Premier League. I've spoken to people about this. And one of the big bugbears is that he's not getting Premier League minutes, not enough of them. He's getting used in FA Cup, Carabao Cup. He's got 61 Premier League minutes, by the way. It's Cup not enough. And, that, and that's what they've been hoping Sarri would do, and he hasn't been doing it. But listen, if you think Chelsea fans are annoyed now, I think... It could be a situation in the summer when they're fuming because potentially their front three, at, well, at some point this season, they're going to play Hudson, Adoy, Hazard and Higuain up front, a Triple H, right? So they're, they're all going to be up front. And there's a genuine chance none of those players are there next season. Yep. And that should actually be possibly the best front three in the Premier League. Maybe not as good as Man City's. Maybe I think if they were to all reach their potential, they would be Come better. On, they would it's be better than Liverpool's front three. No, I disagree with that. What Hudson Odoi, yeah, Hazard, and Higuain? They can't all be reach their potential at the same time because Higuain's past is, and, H- and Callum Hudson Odoi's is ten years. No, in the they future. can still do it. They can still do it. But <laughs> anyway, what I'm saying is, 
That's really not my argument here. My <laughs> argument is, if you think they're annoyed now, wait till those three aren't there at the start of next summer. season yeah, of and see what happens then. Right, well, I think that's good for Hot Takes. Isn't Sorry, it? Thank you, boys. That was good. A good discussion <laughs> was had by all. So after the break, we're going to be bringing in Miguel Delaney to talk about the five best games he's ever covered as a journalist. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to BR Football Ranks, where we are delighted to be joined by Miguel Delaney of The Independent. Miguel, how are you? Not too bad, thanks. Glad to have you on the show. Great to be here. We're going to be ranking your five most memorable moments that you've covered in journalism. What was your parameters for for setting this ranking? I was kind of thinking, I suppose, first of all, it should be ultimately games that stand out in your memory that have had some sort of striking impression on or you felt a real maybe personal and professional satisfaction having been there um, or maybe because they summed up something about the job or kind of then had that extra element of emotion for you basically ultimately what it came down to was well I don't know when I'm, especially given all the talk of you McIlvany this week when you're looking back at your career what, what you've pleased to have been and pleased to have covered but in saying that when I was running through the list I was actually thinking to myself I, I, I was trying to work back beyond with the obvious choices then like when it came to the fourth or fifth and I wasn't too sure um, I was kind of running back through recent games, recent great games that like w- would have kind of happened during my career, and I realised some of the best that I would have wanted to be at, I wasn't. I was somewhere else. <laughs> so I'm, most obviously, the Bra- Bra- uh, Germany seven, Brazil one. I was supposed to be at that game, and the day before, the Independent asked me to go to a Louis Van Gaal press conference. No, not even Van Gaal. It was actually it was uh, Netherlands were playing Argentina, and they needed someone at the Argentina press conference in the other semi-final and like there was Sebea who said nothing went to that barely it was so late that it barely made I don't think even made the paper in the end and then I'm, I'm stood there watching like history take place uh, similarly the um, the Liverpool 3 Man City 2 game in April I was at in April 2014 which looked like it was going to be the game that crowned Liverpool almost I was at Chelsea Swansea that day in Swansea then well, I suppose what actually might be one of the greatest ever Premier League games in that regard um, the game actually denied Liverpool the title Chelsea Liverpool the 2-0 I was at Crystal Palace City that day which did become important but just didn't have the drama didn't have the job, yeah. Remembered in the yeah, yeah and even that, I, I was actually at the, the, the Liverpool Palace game the 3-all but even by the as amazing as that game was it felt like it just didn't have the consequence and that's what comes into it as well if you I suppose if you want to feel you've been to moments of importance that kind of also bring out some elements to the job. Yeah. So in that regard, I was even thinking, should I throw in a few obscure things like, uh, I like actually one, one game that really stands out, especially given the weekend, was when I, I wasn't too long after I'd moved over here and was one of my first, it was actually my first trip to Millwall, it was February FA Cup tie against Blackburn. And I just remember, not even for, the, for all the perceptions of Millwall, but I've just never been so cold and miserable at a game. And it was, it was actually a proper challenge <laughs> to cover it. But then at the... <laughs> That sort of thing, maybe at the end of my career, I'll only be mentioning that in, in terms of... <laughs> yeah, indifferent. But I suppose it's, a, it's an introduction to the game. Sam and I were at, were at Millwall the weekend. Yeah. And it, it's a different atmosphere to yeah. I think anywhere else in, in British football. It's, yeah. it, it's a different sound they make. It's a different... And I think that experiences like that do kind of shape you in the way that you appreciate the game. Right? Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, And, and also, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's basically good to cover things from every... I mean, I started off covering uh, League of Ireland, which is... The greatest league in the world. Yeah, well, and there's, there's a lot of debate about this, and actually, where it would rank compared to uh, in, in the English tier, probably around League One, League Two, maybe. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, 
it's uh, it's always exciting. It's yeah. always exciting. Well, let's let's get underway. What what have you got at five, and, and we'll work our way through the list. Oh, I was first of all, I was thinking about should I go for maybe some big Premier League game. But as I mentioned, I, I think I seem to have missed them all. Some <laughs> <laughs> big ones. Perfect guy to have on the yeah. pod. Yeah. Uh, but I think the, the first one I go for is actually again it's that kind of mix of maybe personal and professional, but also it was the first. This is your number five. It's my number five. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the first game I really covered of consequence maybe I was working for a, a Sunday, an Irish Sunday at the time at the Sunday Tribune which actually went bust in 2011 and I'd been to Euro 2 as an April but that was kind of like a more passive role and like neither Ireland or England are qualified so it didn't matter so much whereas this was the Thierry Henry handball game oh. and it felt like the first like one of those games you're at it was, a, it was a Wednesday night so I was working for the Sunday which also was as, as you know Dean from your own history I I suppose gives you scope to kind of look at things, t- talk around issues, yeah. and maybe get a, by the time you write about it, get a proper reflection on it. But at the same, it was a May. It was my first experience of being an event, which just felt just had this huge international spotlight on it. And obviously, that only came through the game because Ireland played so well and looked like they're going to knock France out. And then, of course, what happened? Yeah. And and that brought out I suppose, one of the challenges of the job in that sense because we in, in that amazingly for what was then like the Stade de France was built in 1998 or built for 1998, and where we were in the press box had no replays. So, much like everyone else in the stadium, initially we were dependent on the reaction of Shea given and the Irish players, and suddenly text messages coming through, not just been a handball. Yeah, of course. I mean, I suppose in the context of the, you know, that was a, a game that defined, you know, I suppose Irish football for for, for a period of time mm. afterwards, and but also a lot of people's perceptions on, on Thierry Henry. But... If you look at that from a, a perspective of you were there working on it, but also had a vested interest as a fan, how's that kind of context and contrast to uh, looking at a game in the stands as just a fan? Well, I was going to come back to that for my, for my number one choice because these kind of wrap, wrap around a little. But but there is a maybe from that. Obviously, there was the element of what you, I mean. I'm half Spanish, so it's one of my countries qualifying for the World Cup, and one of those countries being one who's only qualified for three World Cups in yes. Ireland. So that was one thing going into the game and and even through it, it would have meant so much to the country just to qualify, which I think maybe isn't maybe appreciated in some of the kind of bigger countries, just getting how big getting there is. But also that married the professional in the sense that me and the Irish journalists there, we were thinking at the time, okay, our summer and our, you know, is dependent on yeah. whether Ireland qualify. Um, yeah. And so, it's, it's, yeah. So it's, and there is, I mean, this is maybe something people are reluctant to confront in sports journalism, but, you can't help a bit of that personal emotion and that investment getting to you. So, like, after the game, even though throughout that campaign, Ireland were managed by Trapattoni with Liam Brady's assistant at the time, and even though there's been, there's been a little bit of spikiness between the media and the management team for the you know, style of football and all this, it was quite strange that after that game, I was working on Sundays from the mix zone. I mean, again, you have so much more time to do, but the way Trapattoni and Brady came out, and some of the players too, and they look at the Irish media, not maybe for the first time in that campaign or, or first time after games, not necessarily as someone looking to get them to say something they don't want to say or some sort of adversary, but they're actually looking to us. They they're seeking us out because they see us on their side. They need they, to, yeah. yeah, yeah, they want they want to express their anger. It's yeah. crazy if to think back to then and, and when there wasn't TV replays and when you yeah. didn't have the the instant reactions on Twitter to help yeah. you out with your match reports. I remember it as well. I remember being. Um, at Watford in 2008 and there was a ghost goal oh, yeah, it, yeah. It, it literally didn't go in um, but at the time you couldn't tell um, 
what had happened and, yeah. and there was all this con- controversy going on we're just seeking out replays of this moment so um, I mean obviously the Ireland one is much more higher profile but um, yeah crazy when you think back to how the game was reported back then and it's not that long ago compared yeah. to how you do it now well, that, that, and even in terms of like the Twitter thing is interesting because I think it was really the 2010 World Cup that it actually properly exploded yeah like, so yeah, in two thousand nine, there was, there was like it wasn't as mainstream. Whereas now, if there's any sort of controversy, in fact, if you if you if you even if you're at a game and even tweet something, the amount of people are like you've got something slightly wrong or some controversy, the amount of people are onto you straight away. No, this is exactly what happens. Yeah, sometimes you even notice yourself you've made a mistake, but people have already pointed it out yeah, for you, yeah. and your employers already knew about it. Yeah. <laughs> you also get people asking, "Are you even watching the game?" Yeah. I'm sat in the stadium, guys. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's a four, Miguel? Uh, four is actually. Uh, and some might consider it a niche choice, maybe not, not really internationally, but a game that never t- took place, uh, which was the 2018 Libertadores. Uh, I ju- ju- and I have that there just for the sense of it was so distinctive, it, and I think it's something that I'll, I'll always remember. And almost because of the fact the game did, the, I, I ended up going to to uh, rearrange game in Madrid, but that just didn't have the same. It was great to be at it, but it just didn't have the same sense of weight or importance, or yeah. I suppose meaning that being in Argentina did. And, and the fact the game didn't take place then almost made it more of a, stu- a story from a journalistic perspective. And completely weird to cover. And sen- like, you know, you go to a game thinking, and especially something like that where I suppose you have to try and, you know, as massive as Boca Juniors and River Plate is as a game and as massive as the Libertadores is, you still have to ultimately report on that in a way that is more accessible. Well, it was essentially maybe a parochial rivalry uh, and translate that for a more international audience, but then you're not covering that game at all. You end up covering a con- news story, yeah, a news story, a, a developing news story. With all, and I remember like we were th- about seven p.m. in that stadium, like, and it was all this, all these stories about how the Argentine Argentine prime minister got involved and like was insisting the game being played. All the and suddenly it goes from this story of you know back page all, to yeah, front page, yeah, yeah, and all like the amount of threads involved in that that we had to kind of wrap in you know all the problems with Argentine football the uh, the rivalry itself then the kind of the political pressure you know FIFA being involved there, there was so much on it and, and of course that was imbued by like two days before that I mean first of all even being in the stadium I was there four hours before the intended kickoff and the atmosphere was incredible and there was a little bit of a lament in the fact that I didn't get to say, see a goal scored uh, in that particularly actually it would have been interesting yeah. that Boca scored to feel the silence because obviously there's no away fans, mm. um, but I like I, I so I'd been to the Bucket training two days beforehand, which is actually like an event that never been invented itself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. that was one of the best atmospheres I've ever been to. Do you feel hard done by that you didn't get to see the game there? Uh, li- I mean, to an extent, but at the same time, what happened in itself is unique. Yeah, um, it's literally a historical event. Though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's it's a bit kind of uh, it's tempered on both sides. Yeah. With that being the last Libertadores Cup final that was in two legs, the chances are that we'll never ever get to see a spectacle that maybe would have been on that size ever again. And it's almost a lament, like you say, that we will never see a Libertadores final that's split between those two iconic stadiums. And is there kind of overarching regrets about the whole thing I, I suppose from a football perspective in addition to from a, a journalistic perspective well the, the one thing the one sense I got from it throughout that is how distinctive that was and I mean I suppose how sanitised European football has become in that. and that's ultimately what they're trying to do in South America because that's basically what what sells what makes money and that, that's precisely what they're trying to do with, with the Libertadores they want to make it like the kind of the sheening product the Champions League is and yet what's still 
I mean, ultimately, why we were over there, as, as massive as the game was, was the kind of the rawness that the size of the game brings out. It goes back to that Millwall thing, right? Yeah, and back to that kind <laughs> yeah. of... Hang on, hang on. No, I'm not. I'm not comparing the two, but it goes back to that kind of there are differing atmospheres and I that's what it. makes the game so yeah. special in different parts of the world. And yeah. and, and in, in that and in the fact that they are trying to make it into a kind of you know, South American Champions League, we are losing a little yeah. bit of the kind of what made that so special in the first place. But on the flip side, you know, people, you know, were injured, people nearly died. There, there were very, very dangerous things going on. Yeah. And, 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 I, maybe, I, and yet, maybe across a line, right? One thing that the Argentines there, some journalists who were talking, they pointed out was as bad as this looks and as bad as become uh, for Argentine football and South American football, this was still what actually happened, just, you know, um, a bus getting smashed and, and the game having to be postponed was relatively minor in comparison to the violence that happened in Argentine football recently, which, yes. is, which says it all. Yeah, of course. Well, what's at number three then? How do you follow the limited uh, well, actually, you Make it a game that actually took place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and maybe the, the maybe hypocrisy here is something I've just been criticising because it comes in that, that most kind of sheening of matches or that most shining of matches, uh, the Champions League final. And it was, but it was a 2011 one. And I think this was on my list, by the way. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it's that that sense of basically you're watching football history took place and real football history in the sense of one of the great performances, which was yeah, Barcelona and particularly Messi, absolutely destroying Manchester. It was only three one, but I've always thought that it could have been felt, seven. It felt yeah, I was at a game and it was actually my first Champions League final that I'd covered and. Arabian sent there and there was a feeling at the time that Man United had a, had a point to prove yeah. all the rest of it wasn't there and um, they were taught a lesson like I'm not sure I've ever seen a yeah. side taught a lesson that night yeah. I, don't know. I mean one, a few things that said as you say there was all this build up in the game how Ferguson was talking about how he knew exactly what he got wrong in 2009 he was going to address it and it yeah. just so quickly became apparent that no matter what you did, they couldn't because when Barca were on get it, get close to them. Yeah, I don't, I remember about like 60 or 70 minutes into that game, I think Barca were already three one up. But Antonio Valencia was probably one of United's fittest players, just falling into the back of one of the Barca players because they were so knackered from just being pulled they were just around, chasing yeah. shadows. Yeah, yeah. I think it was one all at half time, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then Messi really scored. Yeah. yeah, it was. It was one of those games I remember watching and thinking, "Is this the pinnacle? Like, is this the peak of, of football as we know yeah. and love it?" Because it almost you know to, to react to that Barcelona squad and you know it's a fair play to Man United because they didn't go out to, to frustrate and to, yeah. to they went out to play and it was almost like this is it you can't see any team ever facing Barcelona and going out to play again until yeah. until this kind of peak is over and I suppose that there at the shine, like you say the shining kind of pinnacle of Western football in, in so many ways we saw the finest maybe performance on one of those stages of all time yeah completely and I even like and then not just a team performance but I was thinking as well in relation to, and there was so much rightly made of uh, Messi's performance against Tottenham in October, a game I was also mm-hmm. at. But just I suppose because the stakes maybe elevated this, like the way Messi played in that final. I mean, I remember 20 minutes in where he had the ball around the, on the D and both Vidic and Ferdinand were coming for him. And I was where my seat was right in line with that. And basically with just two touches, he took them by out of the game. I think he might have nutmegged Vidic in it. Yeah. But it was just, you know, him when you, when you see one of, one of the greats, maybe the greatest on, on another level and, get, and that sense of, Wow, I, I was there to witness that and, and right on it. That Rooney goal that drew them level, have you ever seen an equaliser in a final that just felt more futile? Like, yeah. that's not going to matter. You know, you get the player picking up the ball, come on guys, back to the halfway <laughs> line. You just knew it would mean absolutely nothing. But United at that time still had that mentality where their fans 
could have at least taken yeah. some hope from it because there was that never say die spirit and like okay we can do impossible things and they did feel that they could get revenge for um, the previous defeat but even I've actually spoken to United fans recently about this um, and they said that second half was just a display like yeah they've never really seen before against that's what United were used to doing yeah. to other teams and to outplay Man United like that takes some doing. Yeah, yeah, completely. Magisterially, in some ways, in terms of watching the the cream of the crop turn up in the highest possible pinnacle. Especially and, Pep, and, I'd say. For Pep, that was a massive moment, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I think it was probably his kind of career moment, isn't it? His career yeah, game. So. Everything it meant. Indeed. What's at number two? Number two is, like, people think I'm a Barca supporter. I'm not. I'm like, <laughs> Get out of <laughs> there now. Yeah, my, my, my mother's from Navarra, so I team are Asasuna, who are <laughs> in the second division. Um, but uh, I... Basically, this this is again a, a momentous moment, but also this is more about maybe from a pure journalism perspective and the sense of having to capture history, which was the uh, the Barca six one game against PSG. Okay, and remember, like we I think we booked that before the second leg, or sorry, before the first leg, and I, I think there might have been a sense of thinking, oh, like, even though it's always great to Barcelona, don't get me wrong. Yeah, but, but when you're going to a game where you think it's like there's nothing on this, there's always a sense of Christ. Of course, yeah, because yeah, yeah, it's just yeah. Why are you going there? What's your story? Was the exactly yeah? Is this gonna, line? Yeah, completely. But then I, I was at it the day before. The sense started to grow. Something might be like Luis Enrique uh, was so assertive, and this could be done. And by the same token, like in the pre-match press conferences on Tuesday or on the Monday, might have been. Um, but the same token, Unai Emery really looked a bit scared. And then obviously Barca scored within two minutes, mm. and then. And then, so it wasn't just the comeback in that game. It was also the way it kind of ebbed and flowed. First of all, Barca got themselves back in the game. They're on the brink of the comeback. Then PSG score, so you think it's over again. Then Barca bring themselves back into it again, but you think it's still too much. And then it comes... So not only does it have all that, but it also has the, the ultimate in, those, in terms of match reporting. And not just a last-minute winner, but a really, really late stoppage time with the last kick of the game. Which is great for um, a neutral or someone in the crowd, but as a journalist, it's... Yeah. Yeah, but I'd, I'd say it is, it's it, bizarre because yeah. you, it's great because you're writing an amazing story and yeah. you've got to react and it tests you to your yeah. will but also you're like yeah completely yeah frozen yeah. Well, how does that work how, you know when you're writing you, you've got an on the minute report to file I imagine I mean, on the whistle and how do you it's not quite on yeah thankfully I, it's not quite it's, on the it's whistle not, yeah it's just, I mean in instances like that they will give you some give but it, it's quite weird I mean it Maybe it's the closest thing you compare to what it must be like to be playing. Or no, that, that maybe that sounds a bit. <laughs> no, I understand what you're coming say, from. Yeah. It's 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 the moment in the job basically that really you almost relish the test of it. If you like, it puts you to kind of or can, can you not just can you cover this? Like I mean, because you, you can't just write. Can you capture it? Yeah, can you capture it? Because you can't just write Barcelona went through after a dramatic six one. Like that just does yeah. doesn't, you, do, you, doesn't cut yeah. the You've got seconds to come up with kind of hundred and fifty words, I yeah. guess that is going to capture a moment that is going to be spoken about for yeah. years. People are picking up to remember that moment that they saw, yeah. and you've got to capture it in the next f- few minutes. Yeah. And you're going to look back at that moment. You can't really think clearly, can you, and, yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. But you look back at your report maybe an hour later, I guess once your mind clears yeah, a bit, yeah. and then... A, and you just hope that you got You it. hope yeah, that yeah, you yeah, come yeah. some way to it. Is that I, how you I, felt? Yeah, I, it was, I suppose it was one of those nights where... Because I've had, I've had some nights where, some, where there's been like last minute winners and maybe more so for actually kind of random Premier League games I think gee that's awful what I wrote <laughs> yeah. but, I, but in a way, I think just because of even the knowledge that you were kind of watching something historic or something that hadn't been seen in so long it, that focused in itself and I'm, like, I remember oddly being quite satisfied 
weird how we cover that, which is maybe I think why beyond why it sits yeah, in such a pantheon beyond beyond what, beyond what actually happens for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When, you, when, you, when you actually because actually by, by the same token, one of the you know it should be one of the greatest moments you're going to cover. But like I, I didn't really enjoy the 2014 World Cup final at all to cover. Not to be complaining about being in an event like this, but ultimately when you're there working, other um, issues come up. Which was like the Wi-Fi was really bad. The seat we had was bad. I don't think we had. A, I had a desk actually, um, but the, we were kind of unsighted for the German goal. All these sort, and mm-hmm. it just even though that should be one of the the, the crowning moments. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It just it, it wasn't that enjoyable an event, and I, I wasn't happy with what I wrote afterwards. Whereas. With that, I was. Yeah, that makes such a difference. Dean, is there any big games like that that, you, that scream out to you from your kind of list, I suppose? I don't really remember any big moments where there was late goals. What I do remember about late goals is when I first started writing on newspapers, you would file your report on like 75, yeah. 80 minutes. And, and sometimes you wouldn't even be able to get a line out so you they didn't have wi-fi in the stadium mm. so you would literally have to plug in sometimes even phone if you were really struggling um and it, again can completely turn around obviously in the last few minutes so sometimes you've written a match report and then you've literally got to rewrite yeah. the top however much of the match you've got to take out the first six seven paragraphs quickly restructure it rewrite something that's again captures the moment and put something on the end to sum the whole thing mm. up and it's just a whirlwind. Yeah. And, and late goals as a journalist are the best and the worst thing without yeah. doubt. It, it just gives you this buzz of adrenaline that you co- you almost said like it's the closest thing you can come yeah. to playing. And, yeah, and yeah. it is as a journalist, a, a, a late goal that you, and you've really tests you as a journalist. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it, it is something you enjoy, definitely. Yeah. There's also a weird thing. I mean, it's, it's starting to be phased out now, but it still exists. To, but I've had it for so much of my career. The, uh, this idea takes where you have to send like half the report at half time yeah. another bit at 70 minutes and another bit at 90 minutes which is a bizarre way of doing yeah. it especially when you consider like the amount of times that what, what happened in the first half would be rendered completely irrelevant it, totally yeah like sometimes you, you'd get like a 800 word report and they'd be like okay well at half time can you give me uh, 400 words and then give us 200 words on 70 minutes and then 200 on the whistle yeah. and obviously like that could be an awful match report because <laughs> yeah. it can also betray the moment because yeah, yeah, you're, not, you're not devoting your 60% yeah. of it to yeah. the late winner or whatever yeah. you've got like hate, an even distribution the, the thing I hate about modern day match reporting is man kicks ball reporting yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's irrelevant like yeah. nobody wants to read that if you cared about the game you saw it by now yeah um, and you want more you want analysis you want opinion yeah you want debate in your your read what you're reading now. You want to learn something yeah. from what you're reading. You just you don't want you know. Traditionally, you had to report on what you were witnessing, and that's not so much the case anymore. It's yeah, just everyone's seen it, right? yeah, yeah. And I, that exactly that. And I I do think in most cases that the kind of the bank export report is basically almost dead because what people you, people want an angle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Well, what what is the top? Got to be a big one. This. Yeah. Wait, what uh, is the what's, oh, the, oh, what's your crowning glory? Uh, having having just complained about being to World Cup final, this was <laughs> the first one, and this brings it right back round. Uh, this was uh, the 2010 World Cup final. Cause, oh, we, I did get to go in the end, um, and it was for a Sunday paper. Which again, it, it's amazing to think how we do the job now, but how. <laughs> All right, granted, Fridays and Saturdays were stressful, but to have a week to kind of reflect on things. Yeah. Especially Sunday, so this was a Sunday game. So I, I, I had to do my big preview all of that. Got to go to the match. And then it's one of my, uh, despite my accent, I would feel as uh, as Spanish as I do Irish. Um, and like, so to, ultimately to watch one of your countries win, win the World Cup 
and to be there and have to cover it. I think it brought everything together in that regard. And I must to have, to have the time to actually write something maybe more reflective yes. rather than having to kind of... So to actually... Because it is one of the things that... Um, well, you don't watch the game otherwise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, I mean, in two ways, it, it, I mean, this whole notion of kind of covering it live, it, it, it can, it's both a great thing and, a, and a, a negative thing in a sense. Much as we'd maybe try and deny this, you can only watch a certain amount of it. But at the same time, it's the buzz of... You do enjoy if you if you are watching something great. You you want to be capturing at the time, but but at the same time to have the space to actually watch a game and just and I, I it was one of those games as well. You just I, I've never felt tension like it in a stadium. Um, and I think that's probably gone down in history as now as quite a bad game for most people. It, it wasn't enjoyable. Yeah, for me and that emotional investment I had it, it wasn't that at all. And also having to con- kind of contain myself in the press box <laughs> I was going to say the what's the attitude like to things like that especially if you're invested in in one of the teams do you, yeah. in a press box how do you control your emotions in, in some regards I, I have to say I think it's one of those some, I think people are different though Gal, but I think just sit on your hands there, there, yeah, there is no, I, I think I've, I've genuinely become I'm quite good at kind of controlling that sense weirdly one of the only games I can remember ever celebrating in any way was and I, can't, well, I don't know why this goal in particular, but Diego Costa's equaliser for Spain against Portugal in Euro, or sorry, in the 2018 World Cup. But the first one, the one that had made it one all and three all draw, I remember kind of doing a little fist bump under the table. And I don't know why, but um, generally, even so, for that in yesterday goal, I think I did celebrate because I, I couldn't help it was myself. Late, late goal, yeah, yeah, was like. the latest World Cup winner ever, I think. Yeah, one um, nil. Yeah, uh, but I, but I, I actually remember the, so. For the 2009 Henri game, when Robbie Keane scored the equalise for Ireland yeah. in aggregate, I think every single member of the Irish press box jumped up and, and punched the air. <laughs> Which is, uh, that's okay. You're allowed, you're allowed a bit of emotion sometimes, yeah. particularly <laughs> international football. I think that's when it's all right to come out. I think so, yeah. I was wondering that, actually, um, with England this, mm. this time around. I wondered how journalists would, would react to England actually finally going on a good run. And yeah. I still would have lo- would love to know, I mean, if England had got to a World Cup final, how everyone would have kept their cool and their composure, well, and, especially as they were actually yeah. so behind yeah. the team in Southgate. Well, the other thing about that, I mean, I suppose it's different for me as... like. Someone Irish, Spanish, living in, living in England and covering England like that, the kind of maybe an element of detachment. But I do remember actually the Thursday night, like it was one of those situations where you got like, I like the team and all that, and despite not being English, you're kind of willing them a bit. But I was always thinking, this has been a knackering World Cup, and if England get to the final, it it it, it means that our work doesn't end; it actually is just <laughs> beginning because you're going to have everything there, and even if they lose, the kind of you know the, the whole fallout. From yeah, it, yeah. Where do we go yeah. from here? But like I, like in relation to it, kind of me how England reacted or how English journalists reacted two of my colleagues briefly embraced uh, when they beat Colombian penalties and I know a few journalists who were contemplating uh, wearing suits to the final if England got there <laughs> and it was hot in Russia it was hot and humid in Russia yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's a it's a nice list I like the way that it, it rolls back on itself and I, I suppose the kind of that question of, of where the line is between fan and, mm. and journalist but, which is kind of maybe the most interesting thing for me about how you you know how you cope with that yeah. kind of thing. I remember, you know, like you say, there are moments where stadiums are tense, and I was a playoff final in in 2018 where, with Dean, yeah. and I remember I didn't enjoy the game at all. There was yeah, yeah. there was no point of the 90 minutes that I enjoyed apart from the goal and the and even the goal. I celebrated and then was like, oh no, it's way too early. We've scored it before the 30th yeah, yeah, minute. Yeah. And, and and just being and getting to the final whistle and it just being relief yeah, that washes yeah. over you as opposed to to actual joy or, or yeah. celebration and it kind of it, it kind of got to me that like 
actually, when it gets to those kind of finals and those kind of crunch moments, being a football fan is, is really, really painful. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And I suppose that being in a press box and not being able to release that tension yeah. must even well, exacerbate that further. Well, if you think about it as well, I suppose, if you, I mean, for a fan, probably the moments you enjoy the most you didn't actually enjoy the game because the, because that, because you needed the, the painful tension for the, for it to mean more. Yeah. And by the same token, I suppose for a journalist, if you haven't lived it and don't have that emotion, then there is an argument that you can't really do the job properly because you just you don't really know what it's about. Uh, yeah. You don't you don't yeah. have the game because you, you need the game in your blood thing to actually properly to to know what matters in that regard. And even and that's even like, I mean I think maybe covering football sometimes kind of kind of road some of your emotion can turn you against Definitely, clubs you like. Yeah. And all this sort of thing, but but even still, that that kind of core emotion still remains. Still remains. Yeah. Indeed. Well, thank you very much for all five of those. Uh, I'm looking forward to after the break going through Dean Jones's Bleacher Roulette, and we uh, we're excited to see what you've got on the table. Okay. Welcome back to BR Football Ranks. We hope that you're ready for Bleacher Roulette. The questions are ready. The wheel is set. Dean, go on, give it a spin. Okay, which player would you trust most to look after your baby? <laughs> um, well, I have got a baby, so this is at least one <laughs> part of this I can relate to. So um, if someone was to look after my one-year-old son, um, <laughs> I would, well, I can say a goalkeeper, because um, they have big, safe hands. Good handling, yeah. What about Pedacek? I think this is a great shout. Petacek. I really like it as a call. Um I'd say Pedacek is... Well, he's getting old now, isn't yeah, he? He's yeah. probably about my age. Um, so, what is he? Mid to late 30s, Pedacek. He's 38, I think, now, isn't he? He's what? He's 38, I think, now. Is he? Yeah. He's and older than you, Dean. Yeah, he's so he's older. older than me, so that's good. Safety's a key. I certainly don't feel ready to look after a child. <laughs> <laughs> um, I imagine he's got big hands, can hold the baby very safely. He's also... Um, well, he's retiring, isn't he? So he's got plenty of time on his hands. He's got no distractions. Um, he's probably got a lovely house. Um, yeah, I think my child would be in very safe hands with Petr Cech. I'm very pleased with that. Literally, probably, his hands are so big, he's like really cradle it in one hand. Yeah, literally, even at one year old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who would you have, Miguel? Is this a boring answer? I mean, Juan Mata, he's kind of the answer to a lot of these questions, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Just because he's got, he feels like more than any other Premier League player, he's got a lot of love to give. <laughs> I like it. Sam, I think I could guess that Sam might go for. Go for it. I reckon Sam might go for Bernardo Silva. Yeah, we've, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we've done too many podcasts, Jack, together, haven't we? <laughs> Bernardo, Bernardo speaks loads of languages. Yeah. He could teach my baby <laughs> lots and lots of languages. Yeah. He's very caring, he's very smiley, he's very happy. I, I think Bernardo would be the perfect caretaker. I can tell you haven't got a baby because babies don't learn languages so much when they're at that age. So <laughs> they might do, you how, never how, know. How old is my theoretical baby, Dean? Well, they're only babies until they're like 18 months old. That's so. fine. Get them on the if you start them early, Spanish, suppose, Portuguese yeah. at that time. Okay, I guess they could learn a few words oh, of languages. I yeah. was going to go the same. I was going to go with Bernardo Silva. He, he just looks like he would spend loads of time thinking that your baby was great and, and being really, really pleased about it. I'm going to change that answer because I don't want to do the same. I go with Ika Cassias. Okay. Okay. Uh, I think that, you know, obviously a man of integrity, uh, of heart, you know, one of the greatest ever to play the game. And again, the safe hands argument and the nice guy argument. I think he's got the, <laughs> I think he's got the whole lot, you know, the, the absolute. It's a good shout. He's um he's just such a seems like such a nice geezer. He, well, I'm going to give my son to all of those people, and we'll see who does the best job. Okay, all right. <laughs> we'll get back to I'll you in off. six months. Yeah. <laughs> um, Miguel, do you want to take a spin of the wheel? Okay. Who has the most natural ability, Sané or Martial? 
Ooh. That is from Zevo Nine Rafa on Instagram. Perfect. Oh, Thanks, Zevo Nine Rafa. <laughs> was it Sané or Martial who has the most what natural ability? Natural ability. Natural ability. Good. Before, I, you often hear that question most in regards to Martial Rashford, and um, which I'd always say Martial slightly. What? Mm. It's a good question. Mm. Yeah, that's I, I, really I, tough. Martial's so good with, with like the ball close to his feet with that close control but then I, but so is, so is Sané and I wonder if, does actually Sané's height make you subconsciously kind of think he's not as technically gifted that's true yeah and also I'd say Sané perhaps um, better around the box in yeah. terms of his decision making yeah. and how ruthless and effective he is yeah. also chest control <laughs> I think I'm going to go Sané yeah I'd, I'd go with that Sané like Obviously, you do you do kind of associate him with like hit the byline and cross it in, and maybe provide that back post presence. Obviously, whenever he cuts inside and juggles the ball between his feet, he he can beat three players and leave them in his dust. I think he's better at that than Martial is. Mm. So I'd say that Martial has the edge in terms of pr- like pure finishing in the box, but not a lot else. So I go for Sané. I, I like the idea that Martial is the most naturally of the pair, gifted of the pair, and that he's actually just been badly coached because he's been under mm. Mourinho for three years. So <laughs> I, I'm going to go Martial, give him the benefit of the doubt that you know all of the good things that he did have in his locker have already been bombarded out of him, and therefore That's a good the original point, point yeah. the original yeah. Martial, I reckon, probably just have the edge for me. Yeah, this has made me actually kind of want to go back in time. I'm actually going to go on YouTube later and watch what Martial used to be like before uh, Mourinho ruined him and, <laughs> and see how good and raw he used to be and how he would just do things off the cuff yeah. a lot of that went out of his game didn't it no, he lost confidence yeah. so that's why a lot of it went his, his first moment for United was basically a, a dribble through the Liverpool defence and it, got like, lucky Miguel <laughs> <laughs> he got lucky right. Grumpy Sam makes his reappearance who won that Sano it's two all I think, I think it's oh, two Sano, all I think well, so, undisclosed answer Miguel right. picks so he <laughs> picks Grumpy Sam spin the wheel From NR Leroy on Instagram, what's the best badge or crest in football? Oh, that's a great question. That is awesome. I've got to try and think of about 300 badges yeah. in five seconds and did, pick did, a favourite. A, a bit sad, and this is from the days when I used to be editing Pro Evo when I was in college or uni, as you say here, um, and basically just to waste time, and I'd literally be editing in pixel by pixel. So <laughs> yeah, I have that appreciation. I quite like the Hamburg badge. But Bokka's is good as well. Bokka's is good. Yeah. Bokka's is good. I'm a big fan of Shakhtar Donetsk's badge just because it's really striking. Yeah, it's yeah. really, really bold. Um, that would be my... Yeah, I think I, I prefer that to kind of maybe the old ornate kind of Burnley style. Yeah, absolutely. I, I quite like these new bold badges. I was having discussions with someone the other day about different badges and how when Juventus changed their crest mm. and everyone was like, oh, I'm not sure about that. And someone made a really good point that it's really easy for a child to draw. Yeah. So if you're a kid in Italy and you're just yeah, doodling, actually, yeah. you can draw the Juventus badge, but you can't draw the Parma badge yeah. or the AC Milan badge yeah. or whatever. So be, so actually, it's really useful for subconsciously getting into people's yeah, like, yeah. Uh, heads. So I'm quite into it. Yeah. I'm, I've actually decided to go for Botafogo, which is bl- <laughs> black and white shield shape with a giant star in the middle. And I actually use it on... Well, when I used to play FIFA... Uh, on Ultimate Team I would use it on Ultimate Team three or four years in a row so clearly have some kind of draw to that badge okay Dean I might just go for something like a traditional one like Liverpool that hasn't changed too much I mean I think a lot of clubs feel the need now to go too far away from where they were originally so 
Yeah, I'm and then they end up going back, don't they? they end up yeah, exactly. Back to their roots. I'll bring to... back the circle one. Yeah, can, can we give a shout out to Leeds United's failed badge that, that didn't ever make it? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That was that was a really special moment in my life when Leeds tried to implement that crest and it got banned they by their fans. Gone ahead with that. It was unbelievably funny. Bad. All right, that's badges all wrapped. Let's spin the wheel. What will Messi be doing when he's fifty? from Brad Wilson on Instagram. <laughs> I like to think that he's just going to be raising Hulk the dog's children <laughs> because like at some point there you know he's going to just end up like with a farm. That's, it's basically a horse. And so if he keeps breeding them he will eventually get a thoroughbred and we will see we will see like lots of mini hulks running around the uh, the stadium and also, I, I think he will breed dogs. I think he ends up as an artist because he already is one on the pitch. Oh, nice, oh. nice. Look at that. Just give him a paintbrush and a canvas, stick him in a little house in Rosario and just let him go to work. I hope he opens a soccer school or something yeah. like that. Imagine you could go to Messi's soccer school and you were legit learning from Messi. Like you, you go on like half term, you pay up for your one week course... There he is, Messi, yeah. teaching you how to dribble through the cones and then how to do some bits and pieces around it. How much would you pay for that soccer school? Um, You've got a child. How much would you pay for your child? No, you, Dean, you. At the, age of, <laughs> at the age of 60. I'd pay £100. <laughs> is that it? <laughs> how much money do you think I have? Yeah, I just I presumed you had a bit more than that. I don't know how no, much I'd, I'd pay. pay I'd pay a, a lot of money, obviously, but, um, yeah, the, the Lionel Messi soccer school... I think I didn't. Um, well, Will Covey used to do one, didn't he? It was kind of teaching all, mm. teaching all the Dutch principles and stuff. Um, that's where kind of my thinking comes from. Messi teaching like overhead kicks and, yeah. and free kicks, and he, he definitely if he doesn't do it, his or if he doesn't think of it, his representatives will not find a way to. Uh, Absolutely, because I think Ronaldinho has something similar now. Maybe Basically. you could make one of those Michael Owen soccer school videos, yeah. like, <laughs> and we could we could see Lionel Messi doing that. I, I think generally, though, in in part of it, we saw a lot this week about Diego Milito, yeah, going back to racing, and maybe Messi will do something but, like that at at Newell's. There is an interest at fifty. Yeah, well, no, he's not not playing. Diego yeah. Milito, he's now a direct no, <laughs> football kind of. of no, I just didn't. And, I just don't think Messi will stay at that level. Yeah. I don't see him staying in football, to be honest. For yeah, that long. I mean, because he doesn't seem to have as many interests in that regard. That's what do, I mean. Yeah. Do, there is, there is a, there's a current generation of players that are kind of like the mid forties now, or former players, and they're not like where traditionally route would have been coaching. A lot of them, maybe this is due to the money they earn in their career and that sort of thing, but they're more interested in being suits and administrators in football. Yeah. Like even Ronaldo, like the, the original Ronaldo, has he, like he's involved in purchasing a club now. Isn't it Valladolid? He, yeah, what? yeah, yeah. So, I mean, even Edu, being like, who's uh, mooted as a potential Arsenal director, uh, Melito being the, kind of the main example, but that seems to be much more of a thing now, but you, you don't get the impression. I mean, the one thing you always hear about Messi is that he's not really interested in anything except playing and playing computer games. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he, I mean, he's always promised that he would go back and do one season as yeah. an annual. So, I mean, there is some there is some tie in order to try and get him back there. I imagine when he gets back and he sees the kind of infrastructure and, and all those yeah. things around the club, maybe he'll be moved to... But you think he's going to look after dogs? Yeah, he's going to do the same. You can do these two things together. I don't see why they're mutually exclusive. Dogs, you could yeah. raise dogs at Newell's yeah. oh, okay, and, and, and help with the security <laughs> maybe, at the club. Maybe it's just maybe if he's only interested in playing football and playing games, maybe he retires from football and brings out a console, the messy, the messy console. <laughs> yeah. It'd be better than Fever anyway. Absolutely. And there we are. And that's how we come full circle. Sam, <laughs> let's go on to your nonsense rankings. Obviously, a lot of people's favourite part of the show, these <laughs> nonsense rankings. What are you ranking for us this week? Uh, well, we're, we're shifting gears a little bit. I'm sure I remember last week it was ice cream flavours. Um, this week we're talking movie villains. Ooh. Ooh. Movie villains. 
so I've got my top three. Go three to one, and it will betray the type of film I like very clearly, and it will also highlight the type of films I don't watch. Okay. Um, the uh, in, in at three, which is my wild card selection, and I don't think it would appear in many people's top three, is Loki from the Avengers films, Brother of Thor, or kind of kind of very sneaky guy is consistently stabbing people in the back and he always manages to make you feel like actually he's come round to the good side to the light side is this Mourinho or is this somebody else <laughs> and then he stabs you in the back again <laughs> he's got these awesome powers illusion abilities and just a super sneaky guy uh, really cool to watch I don't know how he betrays me every time you feel betrayed when he betrays the characters Yeah. so a lot of time for that although I don't think that will be in many others then we go into more classic ones. I'm going Darth Vader at two. Okay. Uh, lots mixing in here. You've got the kind of music, the breathing, the ominous powers that he has that aren't necessarily explained if you watch the films in the wrong or right order, depending on if you're the director or not. Um, and that sheer feeling of helplessness that you have around Darth... Not me personally. And the I've music. The, yeah, exactly. That first scene you ever see him when he storms onto the ship in the cloud of smoke and the music comes up, the lightsaber comes out, you're like, oh... Here we go. I prefer Darth Maul. No, you don't. Yeah, I do. <laughs> no, he had don't. a well-cool face. No, he didn't. He did. He had a well-cool, like, He had horns face. in his face. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was well scary when I was, like, ten. And when I was, was chopped ten. in half. When I was ten, that was much scarier than a geezer in a helmet. Was that the first Star Wars <laughs> film you saw? Yeah. Yeah, well, that explains that. Uh, okay, and then in at, in at number one is the Joker. The Joker okay. is raw, uncorked evil. Yeah. Um, particularly the portrayal in Batman Begins, the pencil trick where he makes a pencil disappear through someone's eye socket is pretty awesome. He just kind of feels like that ultimate villain who doesn't have a good bone in his body. And that, I think, ticks most of the boxes for that. I think that's the one, that's the one I get drawn to the most. Is that what you look for in your villains? Absolutely. Well, it might be something more controversial here. He's also the only thing good about that film. Nolan's Batman's thing are... It, it, it basically get worse with every rewatch. Jeez. Bad, bad, bad I, films. I think you've missed out on some absolute like big ones here. Like, Go for I, it. I'm quite disappointed. There's no Cruella de Vil. You've missed out the creme de la creme of villains. You've missed out Scar. You've yeah. missed out the greatest villain in all of film history. So he was actually on my, 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 four, my, my fourth and fifth was Scar and Megatron. <laughs> so I'm in. I'm in. The, I'm in there with you. I'm in there with no, you. You're not in there do... with us. This is one by some. Di- it's not like it's not like. Oh, he's maybe I mentioned. He's one and one and one. And, and there doesn't need to be anyone else in the list, as far as I'm concerned. You just haven't thought of anyone else. No, Cruella Deville. No, <laughs> Cruella Deville's in it too. You, know? you can't even get through that without laughing. No, I, Cruella Deville was scary as. Uh, and and the giant in Jack and the Beanstalk. So they would they would have been my one, two, and three. I think. Dean, what, you know, your I'm villains? I'm glad he didn't pick any James Bond films because I'm going to reveal I've never seen a James Bond film. That's, that's okay. Is it? Well, my, none of my that's friends seem to think that that's acceptable, but I, I talk about it all the time. I'm quite open yeah. about the fact, and I really feared that that's what Sam was going to go down there, and I was like, I'm not going to have a clue what he's talking he's not, about. Yeah, so no, even thanks, good. Sam. I appreciate it. <laughs> Miguel, what kind of villains what did you go for? Uh, actually, I was actually thinking of two Quentin Tarantino ones. Um, Hans Lander in Inglorious Bastards and... The Leonardo DiCaprio character in Django Unchained. Yeah, okay. oh, that's fair yeah, enough. That's a good one. Yeah, they've um, they've gone different around the table here, which yeah. I, I quite like. You know, I think we I we can all fear. Oh, oh, actually, maturity levels. Isn't isn't Scar actually in some ways? I mean, people will dismiss it as a as a children's one, but actually, isn't he basically the um, the, the the villain from Hamlet? 
Yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, the other one you've completely missed out is the the White Witch from The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I've only got three slots. Yeah, I mean, no, but you haven't put any thought into your fantasy here. Uh, and you've gone straight down the... Uh, <laughs> well, I told you it portrays the type of films I watch and the type of films I perhaps don't. Yeah. This I, is I'm, my list. I'm disappointed in you, if I'm honest. That's fine. Let us know what you think of Sam's lists. Please tweet him and Instagram him. Okay. Yeah, just him tweet, tweet <laughs> Sam, letting him know what you think about him in general. It's uh, <laughs> always, always a good thing to get in. Well, I think that's probably just about it for today's episode of VR Football Ranks. If you've enjoyed it and you're not already, get over to iTunes or Spotify or whatever podcast platform you use and hit that subscribe button while you're at it. Give us some ratings, some reviews, and hit any of us up on Instagram or Twitter we're always in the comments and the sections underneath letting our feelings be known about what you think of our rankings I'll be there slagging off Sam if uh, (laughs) if any of you want to come and join me remember you can always get involved in the podcast using the hashtag BRFootballRanks all that's left for me to do is to say thank you so much to our guest thank you to Miguel Delaney Miguel is there anything you want to plug Uh, I suppose I'll get in trouble if I don't plug the independent website and my Twitter I suppose yeah get on there at Miguel Delaney Miguel Delaney yeah. Indeed, so get over there. Sam, thank you very much. Thank you. Sort of. Yeah, I yeah. don't know about that, actually. I don't know how I feel about you at the moment. But thank you very much, <laughs> Dean Jones. Cheers, mate. Emir of the Exclusive, Sir Scoop, my favourite on this podcast. Uh, I've been Jack Collins. This has been BR Football Ranked. Spread the word, let your friends know, and we'll see you next week, Ranked Squad. <laughs>